0: to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering public understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 25th of June 2018 and this is episode number 69. On today's podcast, Dr Jonathan Boff from the University of Birmingham gives a lecture on the German spring offences which occurred from March to July 1918. This talk was given at the WFA's 7th President's Conference in Birmingham on the 2nd of June 2018. Good morning everybody.
1: It's a great pleasure to see so many of you here today and, and, and it's a particular honour uh, to be asked to address you um, by... Uh, at the President's Conference, because frankly if it wasn't for the President and at least a couple of your Vice Presidents, uh, I suspect I probably wouldn't be here uh, today. About exactly ten years ago, I gave my first ever paper as, a, as an academic student uh, uh, at a conference that John and Gary uh, organised at the University of Birmingham. Uh, Cal was on the door then as well actually, uh, so you know, the good, good teams stick together. Uh, and if it hadn't been for the encouragement of Pete, who, who ran the panel that day, uh, and Gary and John over many years, uh, I certainly don't think I would have uh, stuck with it as, as foolishly as I have. Um, <coughs> 1918. I'm actually not going to talk too much about Crown Prince Ruprecht today. I'm going to talk about him a little bit. Certainly he provides the background for what I'm going to talk about and, and, and the uh, the view that I am going to present to you today of the German Spring Offensives is largely mediated through uh, his diaries and through his letters, and, and, and there is more available in the book, which I am squalidly commercial uh, about. I am an unashamed whore. Um, <laughs> uh, but what I want to talk about, really, is the fact that you know, although 1918 witnessed uh, the greatest battles fought on the Western Front, and indeed... The greatest battles ever fought in Western Europe, uh, and that these battles were the battles which at least concluded, if they didn't necessarily decide, the First World War, they still remain, I think, pretty poorly understood. And I don't think very many people, if pressed, would nominate 1918 as the most successful year in the history of the British Army. But I think you can make a very good case that it was. Uh, Never before or since, has the army exerted such strategic weight uh, and advanced Great Britain's foreign policy aims as completely uh, as the army did in 1918. It helped to defeat the Central Powers, it helped to end the First World War, it ensured that Britain had an important seat at the the Peace Conference in Paris, and all the while it was also safeguarding and indeed reinforcing and extending Britain's imperial position uh, around the globe. So what I'm going to talk about today is obviously the Western Front, specifically, because it was there that the British Army, for the first and the last time in its history, uh, played a leading role in the defeat of the main enemy in the primary theatre of operations. It was British soldiers and airmen, uh, together with their American, Belgian uh, and French allies, which fought a whole series of battles, which altogether broke the spine of the German Army, shattered the nerve of its leadership, and helped to force Germany to beg for peace. Between March and November 1918, Sir Douglas Haig's British Expeditionary Force fought, first of all in the spring, uh, a whole series of of heavy German onslaughts to a standstill, Uh, and then during the late summer and the autumn, as you all know very well, alongside its allies, went on the attack, overrunning multiple successive lines of defence, Uh, and liberating great swathes of Belgium uh, and of France, until finally the German High Command was left with no option but to request an armistice. What I want to do today is to explore some of what underpinned this rare military achievement. Uh, And I've divided the talk into three main sections. First of all, I'll outline the situation around New Year 1918, Secondly, talk about the defensive fighting that was undertaken in the spring of that year. Uh, and then, thirdly, suggest some reasons uh, for the Allies' success uh, during 1918, with a very brief look forwards to the Hundred Days. And overall, I'm going to argue, at the risk of eating my own sandwiches, uh, <coughs> that the BEF owed its victory to a variety of factors, which included improved tactical and operational skill, Uh, resilient morale, improved leadership uh, at every level, uh, but also crucially uh, weaker opposition from a German army which had run out of men, materiel uh, and ideas. So let's start off by looking at the situation uh, at the beginning of 1918. I think it's notable that the BEF's successes in 1918 were especially remarkable because it had begun the year in something very close to a crisis. 1917 had been a year of disappointments. Battles such as Arras and Thurdeep had yielded apparently little more than over 800,000 British casualties. And although Douglas Haig continually was protesting that the German army was on the brink of collapse, for Prime Minister David Lloyd George at least, he could see little sign of this happening imminently. So Lloyd George decided to send Douglas Haig a message, to clip his wings. First of all, by purging uh, Haig's staff, the GHQ staff, uh, as many of you will know. And secondly, by refusing GHQ's demands for 650,000 fresh troops to fight the campaign of 1918, and only sending 100,000 instead. The idea being very much, I think, and I'm about to be corrected on this, no doubt, by Alison, but... uh, uh, that Lloyd George thought that there were better uses for manpower either in other theatres or in the factories or for that matter in the future rather than uh, in another series of bloody and as he saw it futile campaigns led by Douglas Hague, uh, in on the Western Front. One of the consequences of that of course was that the War Office decided to reorganise the British Army, or BEF I should say, uh, <coughs> breaking up a number of divisions and reducing the infantry in all the divisions, most of the divisions, from 12 to 9 battalions. Now, in principle, the idea of reducing the reliance on manpower in favour of firepower and machines, I think, can be seen as a sensible one. Uh, but obviously the timing of this reorganisation, which caused disruption to every formation near us, damn it, uh, on the Western Front, was extremely unfortunate because it was only concluded... Uh, on the 4th of March 1918. A second consequence of this manpower shortage was that no thought was given to any kind of preemptive attack to disrupt the German plans for an offensive. Allied intelligence knew that, n- that the Germans were going to attack in the spring. They didn't know exactly when, but they'd seen the divisions being transferred over from the Eastern Front uh, um, to France and to, and to Belgium. They had a pretty good idea where the attack was going to be. They knew it was going to be in the sector uh, on the right of the British line, sort of south of Arras against the Third and certainly the Fifth Armies. As I said, the only thing they weren't quite sure of was exactly when uh, it was going to happen. <clears throat> the third consequence of the manpower shortage was this. Was that it undermined the British attempt to establish a solid defence. I think it's easy to forget that the British had actually relatively little experience of fighting defensively. After all, since the end of 1914, the BEF had largely, at least at the strategic level, been on the offensive. But the successful German counterattack at Cambrai on the 30th of November 1917 had highlighted how fragile British defences could be, and the fact that this German attack was clearly, large scale German attack was clearly imminent, concentrated mines uh, quite effectively. So on the 14th of December, 1917, GHQ <coughs> uh, issued instructions on organising the defence. Now, I'm just going to see if I can get this to work. That's the map. Well, you all know that by heart, so I'm not going to worry too much about that. And that is a schematic of the defence in depth that the uh, British Army tried to operate, supposedly, as what we'll discuss, uh, in the spring of 1918. Now... I'm not going to go into detail again. I suspect most of you are are, are very well aware of of how this was was supposed to work. The key point, however, is that the British Army, at the end of 1917, beginning of 1918, was trying to move away from a traditional forward-crust defence, which basically meant holding the front line as hard as you possibly could uh, and shooting down any attackers as they tried to cross no-man's land in favour of an elastic defence in-depth scheme, a line arrayed in-depth as you can see, over several miles miles deep, within which there was a a degree of flexibility. So you to roll with the punches a little bit and then launch counterattacks to retake any ground that had been taken. That at least is the the way it's um, presented. Let's say we'll interrogate that a little bit more closely in a moment. Now, the manpower problem with this is that obviously it requires a lot of manpower to build all the fortifications in depth. Uh, 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 on a scheme like this and, and because the manpower wasn't available uh, as again, as many of you will know that was simply impossible uh, in the time that they had at their disposal a lot of combat troops were, were drafted in to dig at the expense of training time and rest time um, but nonetheless some sectors of the front they completed all their defences, but in, particularly in the 5th Army sector uh, in the south they were a long way short of it um, the second Bit of this that's to do with manpower is that if you're relying on counterattacks to retake any ground lost, well, you've got to have reserves available uh, to launch those counterattacks. Uh, and if the if the reserves don't exist, the counterattacks can't be made, and that also has a, that has a further morale impact on the forward garrison who are cut off, waiting for a counterattack they know is never going to come. Inevitably, the, tem- the, the temptation, the tendency, is to. Put the white flag up. There were two other problems undermining British attempts to to, to mount a defence in depth, uh, and the first and the most obvious one was that uh, many British officers were uncomfortable with this approach, just because it was un- partly because it was unfamiliar. Undoubtedly, there is also you can imagine a psychological problem here. How do you tell soldiers who have fought or their their comrades have fought and died to capture this ground that you're going to voluntarily give it up, which is an essential part of of it. So there's a psychological problem. Uh, There's a lack of practice uh, in command and communications and counterattacks, all of which were essential for this kind of uh, scheme to work well. But there was a second and and even more fundamental problem uh, with defence in depth, Uh, however... Uh, which concerned not merely the way it was implemented, but actually the very concept. Now, to us, with the benefit of 100 years of hindsight, who who know how modern warfare evolved in the Second World War, most particularly, and, for example, NATO plans for the North German plane uh, during the Cold War, um, (coughs) to us, defence in depth seems... Natural and obvious response to the challenges. One of the some of the challenges of modern war, Uh, but in 1917 and 1918, this it was still a very highly contested concept. The way that the history has been written has tended to flatten out the level of dispute about whether defences should be forwards and crust or in depth and flexible. Uh, But actually, there were still an awful lot of people on both sides, British and French who just thought it was a very bad idea, largely for the morale reasons that I've already mentioned. Uh, This is a pretty complex story, uh, and it may be better to discuss it in more detail in Q&A than to try and uh, outline it here. What is clear, however, is that the British Army was very far from ideally prepared to face the German offensive when it started uh, on the 21st of March 1918. I want to talk a little bit about planning of those those offences from the German side. Now, you can can go quietly mad reading the different German plans for these offensives. There's several months of memoranda going backwards and forwards with different objectives and different approaches and so on and so forth as all the arguments were played out within the uh, German High Command, OHL. But if you sort of... Strip away the noise uh, about them. um, I think there are some some fundamental truths, and the first is that this was essentially a forlorn hope uh, by the German high command. It was an attempt, obviously, to try and win the war before America could make her weight truly felt. But uh, what Ludendorff did, instead of putting together a carefully calibrated plan, uh, which took account of available means, uh, mobilized them in appropriate ways to achieve realistic and sensible ends, strategic and political ends. Instead, what Ludendorff essentially did was threw his troops into battle and tried to make it up uh, as he went along. He had no chance of achieving his objectives because he hadn't set any realistic and strategic objectives. He's been much criticised for, foc- for, uh, for an over-focus on tactics at the expense of strategy, uh, but actually I think he, he kind of has a point. It, it wasn't entirely irrational uh, to, to start off by thinking about tactics. Uh, as he pointed out, and I quote, without tactical success there could be no strategy. A strategy which gives no thought to tactics is doomed to failure, uh, end quote. But what, that, what this doesn't do, I think, is absolve him from the responsibility for working up contingency plans, which he didn't really do, uh, for calculating what he could realistically achieve with the resources that he had available, which again, I think he failed to do, uh, and of developing a clear idea of the best way to employ military force to achieve his political objectives. And Ludendorff did none of those things. Uh, his belief that he could break up the enemy coalition and force peace negotiations <coughs> was based much more on hope than on analysis. And I suspect, although it's unfortunately impossible to prove uh, one way or the other, maybe that's not unfortunate, uh, (coughs) uh, I suspect that he uh, decided to attack less because he genuinely believed that he would win the war than because he was not prepared to admit defeat. Now, (coughs) just because we can see, uh, again, from our 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 perspective today that the German offensives were probably doomed from the beginning because of this poor planning, doesn't mean of course that the BF didn't have to put up a hell of a fight Um, I'm not going to go through what happened day by day uh, in the offensives, Uh, you all know the the outline of the story Uh, two major attacks 21st of March, Operation Michael uh, and the 9th of April, Operation Georgette Um, there is a laser here isn't there somewhere yeah, Michael uh, in this area, south of Arras, down to St. Quentin, uh, and then uh, Georgette, of course, uh, up and towards the Lees. We're going to hear more about that later. Um, <coughs> these are the two biggest battles, uh, so far as the BF are concerned, in the spring of 1918. There's another one which I'll come to a little bit later, which kind of gets written out of the history, because it doesn't fit the history terribly well. Uh, we'll discuss that in a second as well. But what is important is that the BEF forced, was forced to give up pretty much all the ground that it had fought and bled through 1916 and 1917 to gain uh, 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 and suffered extremely heavy casualties uh, in the process. Between March and May, the BEF lost uh, 366,937 men, uh, one in four of the frontline fighting troops uh, in many of the uh, fighting divisions, losses in the infantry were well over 50% uh, in these months, intense losses. Over 150,000 of those 366,000 uh, were dead, confirmed dead, or had gone missing. Uh, many of them had become prisoners. The Germans took 40,000 prisoners in the first three days of the offensive, uh, which was more than they had taken in the previous three and a half years of the war. Um, <coughs> Either way, 150,000 of those 366,000 were never coming back. Um, and French casualties and German casualties were equally heavy and horrendous. Uh, French over 100,000, uh, and the Germans probably about half a million, four, 500,000, something like that, uh, in those first two major offensives. Put the British army under intense stress. There's no two ways uh, about that. However, By the end of April, apart from a few unlucky British divisions which were transferred down to the French sector for arrest and got in the way of further German attacks, uh, that was pretty much the end for uh, the BEF of the German offences. Now, just to come on and analyse these a little bit, There's uh, there's a very deceptive apparent symmetry to these battles, uh, which I think ignores some real differences between them uh, and entrenches an over narrative uh, among military historians about these German offences. If you, if you listen to the consensus, what I would call the consensus view, of the German offences of spring 1918, well then all the German operations uh, adhere to a pretty common pattern. And that common pattern is one of brilliant German tactics uh, Outthinking and out-fighting, brave but weak British defences, uh, German tactics characterised by mobility, aggression, storm troops, there are some storm troops with a captured British tank, um, <clears throat> decentralised command, uh, huge emphasis on moment, keeping, maintaining the momentum of the attack so that any enemy, any British strong points were defence were, that were bypassed uh, and left to be mopped up by follow-on forces uh, later, and that these tactics altogether overran a system of uh, defence which the British had cribbed from the Germans, uh, not terribly well. That they'd failed, the British had failed properly to grasp, or properly to apply, or a bit of both. Uh, again, this consensus narrative. Uh, would go on. British command and control were paralyzed, while the soldiers of the BF, often cut off in small units, fought bravely but in vain, and seemed unable to stem the field grey tide. Uh, British commanders, beset by communications breakdowns, failed to coordinate effective counterattacks. instead too often falling back to avoid encirclement, just creating more gaps for the storm troops uh, to exploit with glee. Uh, uh. However, despite these excellent German tactics, the German offensives, the consensus narrative goes, were then undercut, undermined, let down by their logistics, first of all, and by by, uh, operational and strategic errors made by Ludendorff. Those those, uh, operational and strategic errors would normally be classified, I think, probably as three. One would be dividing... Uh, the attack between two different army groups so so there's no unified command for the German offensive in the first place apart from Ludendorff who's got a few other things on his mind at at that time Uh, that's the first one the second one is uh, at the end of March he gets overconfident, thinks that he's already defeated the British and therefore that he can uh, divide his forces to both finish off the British and defeat the French all at the same time And that proves to be mistaken. And the third one is the the David Zabecki argument, which is that if only the Germans had captured Amiens and had seen the importance of Amiens and driven for it properly, uh, then uh, that might have been more uh, successful. So (coughs) these strategic and operational errors by, uh, by Ludendorff as I say, combined with logistic weakness and overtiredness of the troops and the inability to to maintain the momentum of the German offensive uh, mean that it it was doomed. Um, (coughs) That's a picture of Ludendorff looking particularly implacable. Um, Now, the point about this consensus narrative is, if you think about it, um, it's primarily one about the German army, isn't it? Uh, What it's doing is it's assuming or the hidden assumption that underlies it, is that the Germans would have succeeded if they just hadn't happened to have made a few mistakes uh, along the way. And it feeds into a view that the tactics that were used on both sides, but particularly the attack tactics used by the Germans, then feed in, first of all, to the blitzkrieg tactics of the Second World War, and indeed to offensive tactics in modern warfare more generally. It also fits very neatly or is, is totally tied up in fact with an idea that the German army in the first half of the 20th century was this sort of paradigm of military excellence that if you, if you can strip aside its political um, political role, political, well Nazi evil <laughs> basically and imperial miscalculation under the Kaiser if you can, if you, but if you view it, view it purely as a technical tactical, uh, military fighting machine, that it was in some way better than all the other militaries uh, uh, around the world uh, at that time, so that's I think, a, a, and the fact that people want to believe those two things, the modernity of German tactics and the excellence of the German army in the first half of the, second, of the, first, of the 20th century kind of feed back into the way that people look at the offences of 1918 that's the point I'm trying to make, certainly the way that the German historians uh, wrote it. Now, the problem, as I see it, with this um, myth of the spring offensives uh, in 1918 uh, is that the reality was much more, well, there are two problems with it. First of all, reality was much more nuanced than that, uh, and secondly, (coughs) German failure was, yes, to some extent, the result of German shortcomings and mistakes. But it was equally the result of things that the British and the French actually did right. Uh, uh, even on the 21st of March, the, the, the poster child, if you like, for German success in these offensives, uh, success was very far from uniform. Yes, on the German left wing in the far south, uh, they advanced 13 kilometres, an unprecedented, um, unprecedentedly large advance. But on the right, on the 21st of March, the, the progress was much less impressive. Now, they struggled to make 5,000 meters, ended up a good eight kilometers uh, short of their objectives, and, and it's not, simply not true that all German assault troops were capable of operating uh, at the very highest level. If one contrasts, for example, the success of the 21st, of, the tactical success, of the 21st of March, or the 9th of April with Operation Mars on the 28th of March, we get a very different story. Operation Mars tends to get downplayed in the historiography, precisely as I hinted earlier, because it doesn't fit this pattern of German tactical excellence. In fact, Operation Mars, which was just around around and south of uh, (coughs) Arras, was badly botched. Bombardment was far less thorough than it had been the previous week. Counter-battery fire was far less effective. The barrage rolled forwards too quickly. Not all the troops have been trained in storm troop tactics. And in any case, the British positions around Arras uh, were much more well-established and complex than they were further south. So the gaps that enabled small group maneuver and infiltration on the part of the German storm troops simply didn't exist. And the Germans were forced to revert to a much more traditional close order uh, affen- uh, attack. There was little fog on the 28th of March to mask the assaulting troops, and therefore the British, who, by the way, were not operating a defence in depth in this sector at all, because the terrain enabled them not to, uh, were able to shoot the German attackers down as they crossed uh, no man's land. Uh, The attack was a disaster, and it was cancelled by the early afternoon uh, of the same day, 28th of March. (coughs) Even where the new tactics were uh, followed. It, throughout both March and April, uh, troops repeated, German troops repeatedly seemed unable to shake the habits of trench warfare and to keep up with the tempo of operations. And in terms of uh, artillery, and I'm sure there are some uh, gun experts uh, in the room, although some units certainly did use the, the Pulkowski method of, of firing by the map uh, in an effort to, to retain surprise, others didn't, and there was no um, common doctrine within the German army as to how to use artillery in the offensive uh, until about the end, middle of May, end of May uh, 1918 and lastly and I think most importantly probably uh, far from leaving subordinates free to use their initiative within a decentralised model of command, Alftrags uh, mission command, uh, whatever you want to call it, core Uh, army headquarters and indeed Ludendorff himself uh, have been trying to exercise much too much control micromanaging all the way down the hierarchy such that whatever the shortcomings of German logistics and strategy uh, and strategic decision making uh, any initial success the Germans enjoyed for example on the 21st of March uh, depended at least as much on other contingent factors such as terrain, weather, and the strength or weakness of the Entente defence, as it did on German tactical excellence. In other words, it's not all about the Germans. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we now know that the BEF, as I said, has survived the worst uh, by the end of April. We also know that Ludendorff's attempts to break the French over the balance of the summer uh, would fail, and that at the Second Battle of the Marne, beginning on the 15th of July 1918, the initiative shifted for the last time from the Germans to the Allies. But of course, to Hague and to Foch, and to Pétain, at the time, on the ground in the spring and summer of 1918, none of that was evident. They could see, it's true, that the tempo of German offensives had declined, but they could still see that the German army had plenty of reserves left most of the time, and that it was within 60 kilometres of three potentially key objectives Paris, Calais and Abbeville in other words potentially one good German victory away from possibly uh, some kind of decisive effect so as a result (coughs) the BEF still thought itself uh, correctly under real and imminent danger and it spent May, June, July uh, on a defensive footing, replacing losses uh, and casualties, training men up, rebuilding lines of communication uh, and building and networks of supply uh, and, and organizing new defenses. <coughs> By late June they were able uh, to go back, start thinking about counter offenses uh, and then when, as I say, on the, during the Second Battle of the Marne uh, the German offensive finally started to falter. Uh, the French and Americans launched a, a very successful counterattack on the 18th of July, and thereafter the Allies never lost the initiative again, beating the Germans back in battles such as Amiens, the Meuse-Argonne, breaking of the Hindenburg Line, the Fifth Ypres, the Sambre and the Selle, uh, until finally the Germans capitulated uh, in the famous railway carriage at Compiègne. Now I'm not going to discuss this Allied counteroffensive in detail, partly because I was told not to, partly because many of you in this room have heard me talk about the 100 days far too much for one lifetime, uh, never mind more. But what I would like to do just to to finish up is to explore some of the foundations of Allied success. Uh, And the first thing I want to talk about is materiel and, and logistics. By 1918, firepower and mechanical warfare was taking the place of manpower. Uh, And men increasingly were necessary only to support the machines. To give you one example, a famous example, uh, battalions, as you will know, British infantry battalions went to war in 1914 with two Vickers machine guns per battalion. By 1918, each infantry battalion had 36 Lewis guns, and of course could call on further support from the Vickers machine guns uh, of the machine gun companies. Uh, And it took about 200 men or half the fighting establishment of a British Infantry Battalion in 1918 just to keep the Lewis guns operating. <coughs> to do that, however, required industry to be geared up to provide those machines and indeed everything else that the soldiers needed to fight. And by 1917, 1918 that industry had been geared up. So written-off aircraft, for example, could be replaced very rapidly. The RFC, RAF, suffered extremely heavy losses in the first days of the German offensives in March 1918. By the 8th of April, so within two and a half weeks, the RAF had more aeroplanes in the air in action than it had had on the 21st of March, despite those those losses, an incredible logistic achievement. As you will again know, by autumn uh, 1918, the British artillery was able to fire off uh, three times the weight of shells that it had been able to fire on the Somme in 1916, in a week. So, where the BEF had really been living from hand to mouth in 1914-1916, uh, by the time of the armistice it had plenty of munitions uh, on, immediately on hand and coming through from the factories. The second point, however, is uh, an obvious one. Possessing all the weapons in the world... Uh, is only of limited value if you don't know what to do with them. Uh, Now, there's no question to my mind that the British Army, often via a process of trial and error, had ascended a range of individual learning curves or undergone a a range of individual learning processes, if you prefer, uh, developed experience and new skills. Just to give you two, again, fairly obvious examples. David Jordan has shown how by the summer of 1918... The RAF was undertaking essentially all the missions that modern aviation still undertakes in war today. uh, 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 By the end of the war, does that make sense? Yes. Um, They had discovered all the different things that you could do with an aeroplane to fight, uh, and were and were doing them not exactly the same way, of course, as the RAF does them today, but with the same in 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 a similar fashion, a recognisable fashion. Uh, Anyway, another another example, if you wanted to fire off an artillery shell with the increased accuracy that was possible in 1918, well then your ability to do that depended on new techniques and new inventions in a whole range of fields, which included survey, aerial photography, meteorology, metallurgy, uh, fuse and propellant technology, communications, command, control and intelligence. To then employ that shell to the best possible effect required a sophisticated grasp of tactics uh, and of operational art. And nothing was possible at all without mastery of the logistics skills necessary not only to transport the shell to the gun and make sure the gun was working, but also to keep the crew fed, clothed, watered uh, and ready to fire. The third point I want to talk about is the fact that the army had learnt not only how to fight, but also how to learn. It had evolved a process, to, or processes I should say, to capture lessons learned, distill the most important, and revise best practice through new doctrine. Sometimes the new approaches were codified uh, and published in documents such as the SS pamphlets, which many of you will be familiar with, or other instructions. Other doctrine, inverted commas, was disseminated through many informal channels of communication which linked the army within and between theatres scattered all over the world. Uh, Consciously or or by accident, the army had managed to construct a highly flexible and effective system of learning systems operating simultaneously down multiple different channels, each characterised by varying degrees of formality and central control uh, to spread the word and ensure that innovation and adaptation was, an, was as effective and as efficient uh, as it could possibly be. I think other aspects were also important to British victory. I haven't really got time to go into them now. We can talk about them more in Q&A if you like. First of all, Britain understood the kind of war it was fighting, could see how it ended, uh, and had, had devised a, an appropriate way of fighting it. Uh, Secondly, she was, Britain was working very well within her alliances, note the plural. Uh, and thirdly, morale and leadership uh, were very, very good. But overall, however, if you want to see how much more potent a weapon the British Army constituted by the end of 1918, all we actually need to do is to compare the BS position at the beginning and end of the year. In January and February, as we saw, it squatted on the defensive. Apparently paralyzed by the High Command reorganization, uh, High Command reshuffle, I beg your pardon, uh, and the swinging reorganization of the ranks, awaiting a German offensive which it expected to be able to contain but had no thought of preempting. By the end of the year, in contrast, uh, the BEF had launched multiple major offensives, employing up to five armies at once. In less time than it had taken to plan an attack by just one army in 1916. And it had defeated the German army time and again, outfighting it in trench warfare and in more mobile operations alike. And all of this had been achieved while continually advancing, as Haig and Foch employed with great success a form of rolling attrition designed to chew through German reserves of manpower as well as continually. Forcing the Germans back. The logistic achievement, to my mind, was hardly less impressive than the fighting performance. The BEF had played a leading role in defeating the most feared army in the world, the military which had set the standard worldwide since the 1860s, at least. To fight a successful defensive battle and then make the transition to a victorious offensive is one of the hardest things to pull off in war. Montgomery managed it in the desert in 1942. Bill Slim managed it in the jungle in 1944-45. But impressive as both campaigns were, neither, I think, can compete in scale or importance with the achievement of Douglas Haig's BF on the Western Front in 1918. For the first and the last time in history, i said it before, I'll say it again, uh, the British Army defeated the enemy's main force in the main theatre of operations. The fact that it managed to do so while also projecting British power around the whole globe, literally from Archangel to Zanzibar, uh, only makes the achievement more impressive. But the story of 1918 as a world war is definitely one uh, for another day and another audience. Thank you very much.